Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Let's talk about how the rise of Netflix has killed the holiday-themed TV show episode. Okay? It's all Netflix fault. You remember, if you're old enough, you remember when every show, every sort of sitcom comedy had their holiday episodes. Whether it was MASH and they were having Christmas out in the field, or for those of us of my generation, you kind of vividly remember the Friends Thanksgiving episodes, right? The one where they gets the, the turkey stuck in his head or the one where he's Thanksgiving in the box. Like we vividly remember those. But now that we have Netflix, they don't release sort of shows sort of serially that's not coming out in December. So it doesn't matter if you have a, a Christmas themed one. But we remember those. I, I remember specifically probably the greatest uh, Christmas episode of a TV show of all time was probably The Office. When in the office, they decided that they were going to do a, a gift exchange, a secret Santa. And they said that the limit on the secret Santa was going to be $10. So, of course, Jim gets Pam something very meaningful and sweet. Phyllis gets Michael a handmade mitten. And Michael decides to buy Ryan an iPod. <laughs> Of course, comedy ensues. Whether or not you have seen this episode, are familiar with these characters, the imbalance of somebody buying someone else an iPod and someone knitting them a mitten is quite imbalanced. And so the show sort of erupts into things. And as the show goes on, uh, Michael, the antagonist, you might say, of The Office begins to lament that everybody else has gotten junk gifts and he has gotten a good gift for his friend Ryan. And he says something very profound. He says, Christmas is great because at Christmas you can put a dollar value on love. I love you an iPod much. <laughs> And we laugh at that. And we laugh at the writing of the show and say, ah, yes, that's somebody who does not understand Christmas. That's somebody who just doesn't get it. <laughs> Foolish Michael Scott doing Michael Scott things again. Let's just pick on him. It's clearly wrong. So if it's clearly wrong that when Michael says that Christmas is about the monetary value, you can show somebody your love in What's the right answer then? What's Christmas all about? It's, okay, it's not what Michael Scott says it is. Got it. So then what is it about? Is it about family? Is it about love? Because anecdotally and, and sort of you start to look at it and Christmas is actually one of the loneliest times of the year. Christmas is a difficult time 
For those of you who have strained family relationships, those of you whose family relationships are not what you hope that they are, those of you who are struggling with the idea of loving and being loved, there, there is a lot of loneliness around this time of year. It can't just be about family or love. You even see that in the episode of The Office where Jim tries to do something sweet for Pam and it kind of backfires and he decides to not give her the note declaring his love for her. It's not about how much money we spend. What is it about? See, we all have this feeling, this pull. I, I know that Christmas should be meaningful. I know that it's meaningful. It's, it's such a big deal because it's got to be meaningful. But I'm not quite sure what that meaning is. And I feel pulled by this. I feel pressured by this. I feel, I feel anxious because I don't know how to, okay, what do I do? Okay, yes, it's not about, okay, I, it's not about the gifts that I give, but I kind of want to give gifts. Okay, I shouldn't go broke buying stuff for my children. But that Hot Wheels set's pretty awesome and he'll love it. Okay, okay, it's, it's, it's about spending quality time with my family, but my family's difficult. Okay, it's about, it's about showing others that I love them, but what if they don't love me back? And we kind of experience all of this pull, all of this tension, all of this cross-pressure. And it all begs the question, what do we do about Christmas? If, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, I, I want to ask you, like, that's a question I have for you. Is like, what do we do about this? Do we cancel Christmas? Do we just say, like, it's hard, it's a bad idea, let's just get rid of it? I don't think that's the answer. I mean, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, what would you say, right? If I were to ask you the question, what should we do about this? L- let me tell you, I know what 60, 70, 90% of you would say. Even as I have begun to sort of lay out the pressure of the meaningfulness of Christmas, you, your mind has already been populated with a cliche, has it not? Jesus is the reason for the season. Come on, Pastor Justin. You should know this. Literally your job to know this sort of thing. Jesus is the reason for the season. Okay, fine. But that doesn't mean anything. That's like saying we need to keep the optimist in prime day. It just, it's, it's meaningless. Because there, and the reason why it's meaningless is because there is so much distance between what our culture has to say about Christmas and what Christmas is all about. There is such a stark gap between what Christmas is all about and what our culture has created Christmas to be. And we live in that gap because what we, what we see is last week, Last week when we looked at the song that Zechariah sang, what we saw is that, that we are kept from awe and wonder. We are kept from it by minimizing our sin. We're unable to experience the meaning of Christmas because we, we sort of pretend that our sin isn't that bad or pre- pretend that our sin doesn't exist. 
This week, what we're going to see is the opposite. As we begin to sort of explore what is Christmas about, what is it about more than just cliche? One way that we begin to understand it better is by being honest about our sin, not minimizing it. But on the other hand, as we look this week at the song that Mary sings, as she anticipates the birth of Jesus, what we're going to see is that our ability to experience the wonder of Christmas is directly tied to our humility. Our ability to experience the wonder, the awe, the joy of Christmas is directly tied to our humility. If we fill the Christmas season with pride, if we enter the Christmas season with pride in our own hearts, not only do we miss out on the joy of the season, but we actually sort of put ourselves in the path of God's wrath. You see, there's, there's an interesting contrast. As we talk about Christmas, as we talk about Advent here at City Church, Advent means the arriving, the visiting. And when we talk about God visiting us, there are times where that is a visit of wrath, and there's times where that is visiting in mercy. And if we are filled with pride, we're putting ourselves in the way of God's wrath. So let's do this. Let's stand together, and I'm going to read Mary's song. It's from Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at the way that our pride keeps us from being able to experience the wonder and joy of Christmas. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and to his offspring forever. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Mary, just like Zechariah, as she approaches this moment where Jesus is being born, where Jesus is coming to this earth, uh, the word we use sometimes is incarnation, as this is about to happen, what we see Mary do is the same thing that Zechariah did. She burst into song. And as she burst into song, she does something a little different. Last week, Zechariah sort of went from the general saying what God was going to do to specifically what God was going to do through his son John's life. Mary does sort of the opposite. Mary starts with the very specific, this is what God has done for me, and this is what it means for everyone else around the world. And what she starts with, as she looks at herself, is humility. She sees herself as lowly. And let's be honest, Mary's not wrong. 
Mary did not come from a cool part of the Roman Empire. She came from an uncool part of the Roman Empire. And not only that, not only did she come from like an uncool backwoods state where like if you did something wrong, that's where Caesar would send you like, yeah, fine. You're still a prince, but like now you're the prince of Palestine. Enjoy that. See ya. But she came from the uncool part of the uncool state. And her family, while it may have been something a long time ago, was not anything anymore. Her family name did not mean much. And it wasn't like she was doing a very interesting and important job. She was betrothed to be married to a carpenter. If you could pick, if you could sort of write the story of God coming to earth, this is not the story that you would write. Jesus probably, if you were to write the story, would show up in Rome and be born, maybe not to Caesar himself, but maybe to Caesar's nephew. And he definitely would have a good family name and money to cash in on. If you and I were to write this story, that's the way we'd write it. And yet here's Mary says, I am no one from nowhere and I have nothing. And God chose her. God chose Mary, a no one from nowhere with nothing carry the Messiah, to carry Jesus. This is so different from the way that you and I have inner monologues going all the time. Now, now I can't hear this in you. And maybe this is just me being really projecting. And there's a chance of that, but I don't think this is entirely the case. I think most of us live our lives with an, a, a monologue, something going on in our minds where we are constantly running commentary on everything that is happening around us. We don't say it out loud, right? that would get us into trouble. But we're constantly looking around going, ah, yes, well, that person in, that person in my class, I'm smarter than that person. Yeah, I'm, at least I didn't get bad grades like everybody else. Well, I'm, you know what? I, I got that sale. I made that sale because I'm really good at sales. And I'm certainly better than uh, Janice because she's not good at sales. Right? And we, we sort of have this running dialogue. And in this running dialogue that we have in our head, whatever our occupation is, whether we're blue collar, white collar, no collar, whatever our story is, we all have this inner dialogue that makes us the hero of the story. That makes us seem a little bit better. I, look, let me tell you, I, most of you guys know I drive uh, every Thanksgiving to Michigan and back, and I do it overnight uh, because the kids are asleep, and that's just the easiest way to do it. And so to keep myself awake on these long, arduous trips, uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And let me tell you how my sinful inner dialogue works. I listen to a podcast, and there's comedians, and I think, ah, yes. Those guys are funny, but... You know, if, if I had brothers, I would be just as funny as them. <laughs> if, if I had some good, but you know, you know, if somebody just put a microphone in front of me, you know, I could be just as funny as those guys. And then I listened to a, a podcast by a pastor and he's like really savvy and understands culture. I'm like, well, I, 
I understand culture. I'm, I'm, I'm just as smart as Mark Sayers. I know, I know things. I understand the way the world works. And, and I write this inner dialogue, and all the inner dialogue is me being the hero. And there's a word. There's a word that captures this idea of the inner dialogue that we have that makes ourselves the heroes of all of our own story. That word is pride, and it's sin. It's sin in my heart. And it's sin in your heart. And it's the opposite. It's what prevents us from being able to experience wonder at Christmas. It's the opposite of what we see in Mary. Mary says, I'm nobody. From nowhere. With nothing. God has looked on my humble estate. And he's looked at me and I am just a servant. I am a handmaid. And God has looked at me and blessed me in this way. You see, what Mary saw was by choosing her, God was creating a new world order. He was creating a new way of the world working. Because in her day, the humble were trodden down. Rome was not a place that was nice. No, rather Rome was a place where power and might worked themselves out. But in Mary, things start to change. Because all of a sudden, Mary tells us that the humble are going to be lifted up in this new world order. That the oppressed are going to be seen and validated that exploitation is going to be ended that all of the sudden all of the sad things are going to become untrue all of the sudden all of the hardship of this world will begin undoing itself all of the sudden it is not those who are powerful and rich that have it all together rather god is looking with special care towards those who have less That's what's changing with the coming of Jesus. And it's easy for us to go, ah, yes, but I still see oppression. Ah, yes, there is still exploitation. There is still slavery in our world. What's with that? But Jesus says, yes. But remember, the guarantee of this, the down payment of me making all things new was who I chose to be my mom. I didn't choose the princess. I chose nobody from nowhere who had nothing. Mary sees this. Mary lives out of this humility. And so Mary not only sees how this is changing her, but how it's going to change the whole world. What does Mary say? That the proud are going to be scattered. That the mighty are going to be brought down off of their thrones. That the rich are going to be left Hungry. This, for anyone who is listening to Mary sing this song, this is crazy talk. This is, this is somebody saying, ah, yes. Because of this child I'm going to have, all of the billionaires are going to go hungry. That sentence does not make sense. That the billionaires will be scrounging for food. That is a nonsense sentence. Unless something is changing. 
unless something is changing in this world. And Mary says, it is. And Jesus coming shows us it is because it's not just that the proud are going to be scattered, the mighty are going to be brought down, and the rich are going to be left hungry. The humble are going to be exalted. The hungry are going to be the one who eat the good food. The lowly are going to be the ones that get shown God's love because he is going to be faithful to his promises. Church, this is the plot. This is the idea. This is what Christmas is all about. And this is what we've lost. That Christmas, that Advent, that the coming of Jesus turns the world upside down. Because what we do is we just want Jesus to co-sign on our living our lives as if the world around us is normal. We want Jesus to co-sign on the fact that, hey, Jesus, I want, I want to be rich. So, you know, Jesus, I, I, okay, I can't pray that I'll be rich. That, that sounds wrong. So I'll pray that the Lord will expand my borders so I can have a greater impact. And so, and so we pray that, so we say, ah, yes. I'm, and we try to cloak, we, we cloak our good, what we think are our good Christian intentions. We, but all they are is church, the same thing that your neighbors want. And we cloak that in good Jesus language. And we say, oh, the, the prosperity gospel is bad. And we make comments on other people's posts when they post the wrong sort of preachers. But then if we were to look at our prayer life, our prayer life exposes that we believe the exact same thing. When something goes wrong in our lives, our first response is, God, have I not done these things? It's because all we want is we don't want the world to change. We don't want God's coming. We don't want the arrival and incarnation of Jesus to fundamentally change the world. We just want to be able to add Jesus on and him to be able to the one that co-signs on what we wanted in the first place. You, you know what you call it when you just want to try to co-op Jesus' name to get the stuff that you want? There's a word for that, church. It's pride. And it's sin. And it's in my heart. And it's in yours. And we do this in all sorts of ways. We do this in the ways that we approach our jobs. We do this in the ways that we approach our parenting. We do this every time we look at somebody else's kid and say, glad that's not my kid. At least my kid doesn't. We do this in the way that we even approach the Bible. When we elevate ourselves to become the ones who decide what's true and what's not, more pride. And it's back in it. And all of this, all of this church, we do. This is not a problem for those people out there. This is not a problem for people in theaters 1 to 12. This is a problem for people in theaters 16. This is a problem for people in my house. It's a problem for me. And what happens is, when we live like this, we show the world around us a different story of Jesus. You want to know why people reject Jesus oftentimes? Because they have no idea what he's really about. Because all we've shown them is consumerism with a cross on top of it. 
And so we just want God to co-sign on our stuff. Christmas is a time where we remember that God is not team suburbs. God is not team gentrification. He's the God of the downcast. He's the God of the lowly. And he's the God of the humble. And until we become those people, until we begin to see ourselves as those people, as the people who need Jesus, we won't have awe. We won't have wonder. And we won't have joy. Mary saw herself as nobody from nowhere who had nothing. And then she was able to experience the awe and wonder of Christmas, of Advent. Because what does God do? How does God respond to the humble again and again through the Old Testament? God gives grace to the humble. How does God respond in this passage, in this song, in Mary's song? God shows faithfulness. God shows mercy to the humble. He shows joy upon them. Church, here's the beauty of Advent. Here's the beauty of Advent summed up. Here's the most compelling and, and beautiful part of the story of Jesus. Jesus is the one who was the rich man, who instead of being cast out, like this story says the rich man will be cast out, he stepped out of his own accord and left heaven to come here. Instead of being thrown off the throne, he steps off of the throne to come and save sinners. He's the one who is of the highest estate. He's the one with the biggest house, the biggest mansion and he leaves that to step into our humble estate so that he might love us so that he might show mercy to us so that he might be faithful to the promises of the old testament so that he might raise us to be his adopted brothers and sisters and that that beauty starts with humility. That beauty starts with humility in Jesus. And for us to experience that, it starts with humility in us. So the wonder of Advent begins to capture our hearts when we see Jesus humbling himself. And then when we follow him on that path of downward mobility. When we begin to reevaluate the way that we see the world around us, not as a means for us to get, but rather as a means for us to love and serve others. And when, when our hearts begin to change, when we begin to see that that's what Jesus is like, when we begin to see that and when we begin to, to, to see that the gospel of Jesus changes us, what begins to change in us what begins to change is we become fundamentally grateful people. Gratefulness is the opposite of entitlement. So this season, it's not a time to be cliche, but to love and sing and wonder at the God of the universe who comes to a manger. Let's pray.